It's increasingly difficult to be a follower of Jesus today. We're a minority. And the majority culture around us is increasingly hostile both to God and to us. Rejecting God, mocking the idea of his existence, and ridiculing and silencing his people. Trying to stop us from talking about aspects of our faith in public settings. And using legislation or maybe the threat of uh, losing status or employment or tax incentives or Facebook friends. Increasingly, being faithful to God opens us up to being cancelled by the majority culture. How should we respond to this, it's hardly persecution, how should we respond to this marginalisation of Christians and their beliefs? Well, in Daniel chapter 4, we learnt not to write anyone off. Uh, God is capable of humbling and transforming even the most powerful idolatrous rebels, uh, people like King Nebuchadnezzar. And the lesson for us was simply, well, remain faithful and let God do his thing. But in the next chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, it's a, a slightly different lesson, still set against the same background. But it looks at those who aren't going to change like Nebuchadnezzar did. What about those people who refuse to be humbled by God? People who aren't interested in even considering the evidence. Uh, what do we do? What will God do? That was the question being asked back in the second century BC. Back when I think the book of Daniel was likely compiled in this form. Jews facing persecution from the, the Syrian arm of the Greek Empire. The evil tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 168 BC brutally tried to stamp out the Jewish religion. He banned them from any religious activity. He set up abominations that defiled the temple. And he killed anyone who refused to comply. And it was into this setting that the book of Daniel first spoke, reminding God's people of the stories of another time in history when God's people were an endangered minority. Another time when they were stopped from freely observing their religion without consequence. Another time when there was a, a danger of persecution on the one hand, but an equally bad danger of compromise on the other. And the stories of God's faithfulness to Daniel and Daniel's wise, faithful, patient waiting on God, these stories were retold in order to encourage God's people to persevere, to remind them of how God is the one who will act to put things right. So let's take a look at today's story in Daniel chapter 5. It starts off with King Belshazzar throwing a party. Uh, now, in case you think you've missed a chapter since the previous story about King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you haven't, because uh, it kind of jumps forward. We're now in 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king, having died in 562. Uh, since then, we've had Amel Marduk, Neriglissa, and now Nabonidus. Except by this point in Nabonidus's reign, he's king mainly in name. Uh, living in a far-flung part of the empire and forced from true power for political and religious reasons. His son, Belshazzar, is now ruling over the empire's capital in Babylon. Let's read the start of the story. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. 
The great banquet Belshazzar gives seems to be a significant one. Uh, from historical records and from what happens at the end of the chapter, we know that the Persians were approaching the city of Babylon. So the banquet's probably designed as an inspiring call to loyalty ahead of a great defining battle. Now, not only is the banquet significant, uh, what he does during the banquet is also symbolic. Because if you can remember back to Daniel chapter 1, it mentions that Nebuchadnezzar not only took the best and brightest young men from Judah back to Babylon, uh, which included Daniel, he also took something else. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now this little detail becomes important now in chapter 5. Those sacred articles have hung around in Babylon for nearly 60 years. Uh, given what Nebuchadnezzar learnt about the power of Israel's God over that time, he may well have been a little bit wary of doing anything with them. But Belshazzar has no such qualms. He deliberately orders that the gold and silver goblets be brought out for him and his hashtag king squad to use. On the eve of a great military challenge, it's an action designed to remind the party faithful of the great conquering past of Babylon. But it's also like he's spitting in the face of Israel's God. He doesn't use the sacred cups as they were intended in worship of the one true God who created the world. No, he uses them in drunken worship of idols made of the same stuff as the cups. Now, the narrator is clearly not impressed and neither is God. As we'll see soon, this is why Belshazzar is about to be judged. More than two decades on, none of the lessons God taught Nebuchadnezzar has made a difference to this godless society and its godless rulers. God's had enough and he's about to act. Belshazzar and the whole Babylonian empire will soon be no more. So if you're reading this as a Jew back in the second century BC, you'll probably notice some similarities. Similarities between what Belshazzar did, defiling the temple silverware, and what Antiochus IV did, holding orgies in the temple and sacrificing unclean animals on its altar. The message is, well, just as God dealt with Belshazzar back in Daniel's day, so he can deal with any other blasphemous rulers in the future. And the same goes for us. Sure, we might not have anyone defiling our communion cups or putting up altars to Zeus in our church, but our world is essentially opposed to God and his rule. It routinely mocks or slanders or vilifies us, his holy people, who are now his temple. And what's more, our world uses what God has made to pursue created idols instead of the creator. It takes his good gifts of food, family, work and sex and throws them back in his face, using them contrary to the way he intended and even making idols out of them. The coming judgment of Belshazzar isn't just intended for him or for Antiochus. It's for all of humanity who've chosen to worship created things rather than their creator. Anyway, back to the story, because Belshazzar's party's in full swing. Uh, everyone's dancing, doing shots from the temple cups, and partying like it's 5.39. Until, verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Now, if you're interested in the history, Belshazzar's throne room was excavated in 1899, and it showed that the walls had been coated with white gypsum, a very clear canvas for a spot of divine finger painting, making this supernatural event a very public sign. 
And in case you think, well, could it have just been a, a drunken king having a hallucination? Remember that all the king's wise men could see it too, as well as Daniel himself. Anyway, back to the story. Uh, and we should be used to the pattern by now, having seen two previous stories about interpreting divine messages back in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And there, King Nebuchadnezzar was troubled at the first one and terrified at the second. But here, Belshazzar takes it to the next level. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Oh, NIV, you're no fun. Uh, what they've translated is his legs became weak is literally the knots of his loins were untied. Uh, I'll leave it to your imagination to work out that, what that probably means. But let's just say you'd hope the king was wearing his brown pants that day. Uh, so anyway, we see the by now customary call for all of the wise men to turn up to find out what it means. Uh, with the promise of the winner being made into a successful R&B recording artist. Uh, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, third highest because Belshazzar was technically the second highest ruling in his place of his exiled dad. But as usual, all the king's men couldn't work it out. And all the king's horses were presumably unavailable, off trying to unscramble an egg somewhere, I guess, uh, leaving the king in an even worse state. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. What's the king going to do? Is there anyone who can help? Well, if you've been following the stories in Daniel so far, you'll be expecting this next bit where a previously unmentioned member of the supporting cast turns up and just happens to mention that there's this dude called Daniel. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. And speaking of pale, seriously the wrong choice of pants, dear. Uh, but why shouldn't he be alarmed? She continues, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding. And also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, the phrase the NIV translates as solve difficult problems is literally untie knots, uh, quite pointedly making fun of the kings being uh, at a loose end, so to speak. Uh, in other words, instead of becoming unraveled, call for the guy who's good at unraveling and get to the bottom of this. And so the king calls Daniel and asks him to sort out his stuff. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? These aren't exactly the words of a humbled king, like in the last chapter. Still those of a brash young ruler, putting Daniel in his place. Aren't you one of the guys we beat back in the war? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Uh, contrast that phrase, I have heard, Contrast that with Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in the previous chapter, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is building up a negative picture of Belshazzar. 
Verse 15, the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. I was setting up the contrast yet again between the magicians of Babylon and the servant of God. Verse 16, now that I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems, uh, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So what does Daniel do? Well, first off, he tells him where he can stick his purple robe. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. But nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. If Daniel's already read and understood the writing, he probably knows that the reward won't be worth much by the morning, especially with the Persians at the gates. But more importantly, he wants to show that he's going to interpret it not for selfish gain, but as a messenger of the one true God. But before he gets to the message itself, he gives some background, recapping what's fresh in our minds from chapter 4, but maybe a little bit hazy in Belshazzar's memory. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Uh, your ancestor was an arrogant so-and-so, but God put him in his place, and he at least learnt his lesson. But you, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So we'll get to the inscription in a minute. But notice here how Belshazzar is portrayed far more negatively than Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel speaks to him very dismissively, compared with what seems to be genuine distress at the words of judgment he has to deliver to Nebuchadnezzar. And, well, at least as far as the stories in Daniel are concerned, God gives Nebuchadnezzar more chances to get it than Belshazzar. Why? Well, one phrase in Daniel's speech seems to give at least part of the explanation. Nebuchadnezzar was encountering this God of Israel for the very first time. He was working it all out as, as maybe the first Babylonian to be confronted by him. Belshazzar, by contrast, had Nebuchadnezzar's example. It was widely publicized. I remember the letter Nebuchadnezzar sends to his entire empire. And Daniel points this out in verse 22. He says, but you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. In Daniel's eyes, this knowledge made him more culpable. Rather than acting in ignorance, he has willfully set himself up against the Lord of heaven. He has knowingly chosen idols over the Creator, and so he will shortly pay the price. We see this principle play out in the life of Jesus, where those who should have known are held to be more culpable. Uh, the Jewish leaders who rejected the Messiah and killed him. 
In John 5, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Or or in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's speech against the Jewish leaders, he says, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? Uh, They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Jesus. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And the principle still holds for us today, who've been given far greater knowledge and the mystery of God's plan has been revealed to us. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Well, again, back to the story where Daniel's about to reveal the meaning of the writing on the wall. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parson. Now this might seem weird to us, but they are perfectly common Aramaic words. Which makes you think, why didn't any of the wise men at least have a go at interpreting it? Uh, Make something up even? Or is Daniel decoding some strange writing and then translating them into Aramaic as he speaks? Well, at any rate, Daniel gives us the explanation. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Peres, that's like the singular of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Not the most positive message for Belshazzar, but we'll get to him soon. Let's look more closely at the words that Daniel explains. Because they work on three levels, depending on how you read them, uh, which may also explain the need for an interpreter. Uh, so give a bit of a warning here, a bit of nerd content. Uh, apologize, but it needs to be here, so stick with me. You see, Aramaic, like Hebrew, was written without any vowels. So you would read the consonants on the page and then supply the vowels as you pronounced it. Uh, this is called vocalizing the text. It's a bit like trying to guess the answer on Wheel of Fortune where no one has bought a vowel. As you can imagine, this could lead to some ambiguities, uh, sometimes intentionally, as seems to be the case here in Daniel. Because depending on which vowels you use, the meaning changes. Uh, Using the most natural vocalization, the three words are simply common weights used for measuring. Mene, mene, tekel, peres. Uh, minor, minor, shekel, half shekel. A bit like saying gram, gram, kilo, half a kilo. Uh, Relatively meaningless unless you happen to be talking to a butcher, uh, your drug dealer, or your Jenny Craig consultant. And assuming the Babylonian wise men could read the writing, this is probably what they saw. But there's another level to the message that Daniel uses to interpret using a different vocalization. Menar, menar, tekal, peras. He has reckoned, he has weighed, he has divided. Uh, Not good news for the king. And there's an interesting third level using yet another vocalization. And this one hints at the means by which God would repay Belshazzar for being found wanting. The Persians. Uh, This one is menar, menar, tikal, paras. He has paid out, you are too light, Persia. And so Daniel is able to decipher the riddle which the Babylonian astrologers were unable to get. Uh, The weights theme running through it would have been particularly galling for them as on that very night the constellation of Libra was rising. Uh, Libra is of course the scales. 
So how's that for rubbing it in? The Babylonian astrologers and wise men beaten at their own game by God's servant. Anyway, Daniel gets the promised reward despite his refusal. But the reward is indeed meaningless because that very night the prediction of judgment comes true. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And so the great ruler who opposed God and refused to acknowledge him is killed and his empire is stolen overnight, almost as an anticlimax. Here we have a clear case of a blasphemous ruler who defiles God's holy objects being dealt with by God himself. No Jew needs to even lift a finger, as God did that bit as well. So what message does that send to Jews in the second century dealing with a similar despot, uh, one with a similar tendency to defile holy things? Well, it reminds them that God is in charge and that God is perfectly capable of intervening to sort things out. But it's possibly a little more poignant than that. Uh, notice the way in which the three weights were phrased. You've got minor, minor, shekel, half shekel. Right? Measures, measure, and half a measure. Later on in the prophetic parts of Daniel, we get a similar phrase describing the length of time of the ruler. The length of time foreign rulers will be allowed to get away with the abomination that causes the desolation of the temple in Jerusalem. It'll be for a time, times, and half a time. And a few verses later, it's made clear that we're talking about three and a half years. Three and a half, that's half the perfect number seven. Uh, which in apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation, three and a half symbolizes a finite, divinely limited period of human rebellion. So the message to Jews suffering under Greek rule could well be this. Uh, Belshazzar was a blasphemous despot who, after a finite period, was weighed and then deposed by the miraculous action of God. Three and a half, and then he's gone. So do you trust God that he can do the same again with Antiochus or, or anyone else who refuses to acknowledge him as God? Because three and a half and they'll be gone too. Isn't that the same message for us in the face of ridicule and hostility? Remain faithful. God will act. What's our job? Our job is simply to remain faithful, to resist the urge to compromise with the majority culture, to change what we believe, either in a desperate attempt to fit in or out of a desire to reclaim the place we at least think we used to occupy in society, a little bit closer to the centre than we are now. Now, our job is to remain faithful, to be brave in speaking God's words, regardless of how it's received, to be brave in obeying him, regardless of what that might cost us personally. And we'll see more about that in chapter 6 with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But God's job is to act. God's job is to judge. God's job is to put things right and vindicate his people. Now sure, in a democracy, let's speak up for God. Give a reason for the hope that we have, but with gentleness and respect. Resist the urge to be militant. Resist the urge to be rude or obnoxious or mean-spirited in how we go about advocating for God's values or in how we go about asserting our right to live faithfully to his word. Now, for a start, some of those who oppose us may yet be humbled by God and transformed. Uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, we saw that God could miraculously humble even those we think that are too powerful or too untouchable. 
So that's one reason to continue to show grace and love to a world that opposes us. And others, well, God's the one who will ultimately deal with them, not us. Remember, God's kingdom is like that stone back in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, the stone that crushes all earthly kingdoms. It's made not by human hands. So when God has had enough of being disrespected, he's the one who will do the weighing, and then he'll weigh in. Those opposed to God might run the show for now, but not forever. Their time is finite. Three and a half, and they're gone.